Well, good evening. Good to, good to see you tonight. Glad that you made it out as we continue our series through the, the book of Matthew chapter 23, which contains the seven woes of Jesus to the Pharisees, the seven woes of Jesus. And tonight we're working through this as the third part out of seven weeks as we work verse by verse through this passage in Matthew chapter 23. Well, I don't know about you, but growing up, my family had certain traditions that, that characterized certain celebrations. And most of us, if we were to think of family traditions, they would center on holidays, right? If you think about it, a lot of the tr- special family traditions that you had centered on certain holidays and things that you did. And for me, often, when, when I think of favorite holidays for me, one of my favorite holidays is Thanksgiving, I mean, how can, how the, the weather is often, I love beautiful, crisp fall weather, great food, and a lot of football. Like, that's like a perfect trio for me, right? Like, it doesn't, does life get much better than that? I don't know. It's, it's about it. And, and I always thought, as growing up and then even into early adulthood, that, that every family celebrated Thanksgiving how my family celebrated it. Right? Because you think the traditions that are true in your family, well, that's just how everyone does it. And then something comes into your head that if that's how you grew up doing it, then that's the right way to do it. The right way to do it. A few years ago, I was, um, because I love just talking about Thanksgiving and what people like, and I love to cook. My, my wife and I often host for Thanksgiving and, and to get to cook everything. And so I decided to start to survey and to ask just different people what their favorite Thanksgiving dish was their favorite Thanksgiving dish. And of course, you had several people who were like, oh, I, I, just, I just love the turkey. Like, I, I like turkey. That's good. Or some people are big roll fans. They love the rolls. Others are, are pure mashed potatoes. Just love the mashed potatoes. Some of, are you getting hungry? I'm getting hungry. I'm just making myself hungry right now. Other people like the stuffing. For me, the correct answer is sweet potato casserole with a little marshmallow on top. Oh, it's like dessert and you get to eat it and call it healthy. It's fantastic. And then I, I started asking around to, to some other people. And I remember once I was asking a, a younger gentleman, um, what's your favorite food that your family always cooks and eats at Thanksgiving? And he paused and he thought really hard. And he goes, oh, I got it. Definitely the ribs. And I looked at him, I said, the ribs? And he goes, everyone eats ribs for Thanksgiving. And I'm like, you are eating the wrong food for Thanksgiving. <laughs> But ribs sound delicious. Ribs can go well with turkey. I asked someone else, and he goes, oh, uh, I really love the ham dinner at Thanksgiving. I'm like, ham is for Christmas and Easter, not for Thanksgiving. You are doing it wrong. Now, why in my head is my reaction that he's doing it wrong? Because it's just different than to the tradition of my family, right? And what's easy for us is to think that the traditions that we have are just not just the way that we've grown up doing it, but are actually the right way of doing things. That it's easy for us to think that tradition isn't just the way we've done it, but tradition is the right way. And this often is the case, not just in such trivial things like what you eat for certain holidays, but when it comes to religion and following God as well. It's easy for us to think that the way that we grew up, what we grew up around, perhaps is right and everyone else is wrong. Or maybe that what we grew up with was wrong and other people had it right. But tradition often clouds our thinking. Sometimes even protecting the traditions in which we have become the most important thing. And sadly, we see this is even true sometimes in the church world. That we would rather protect certain traditions of the church than actually protect 
Christianity itself. If someone were to ask, well, why do you do it that way? A familiar answer in lots of settings would be, well, that's how we've always done it. That's just code for that's our tradition and we're not going to think any differently about it. And tonight we're going to look at tradition because sometimes traditions can take on a life of their own. Now, I don't want you to leave tonight thinking that I'm saying that every tradition is wrong or it's bad. That's not at all what I'm saying. There are certain faith traditions that we can have, but there's wrongful uses of tradition in the world, including wrongful uses in religion. And the Pharisees were guilty of using the faith tradition that they were from in a wrongful and harmful and manipulative way towards themselves and towards others. And so if you have your Bibles tonight, would you open them please to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, the the text for tonight is also in the insert that you received when you came in. And tonight we're going to look at three wrongful uses of tradition. Three wrongful uses of tradition. Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 16, says this. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? See, it's important for us to understand that the Pharisees had a tradition that was passed on to them. It's sometimes referred to in scripture. We're going to look at a later passage called the tradition of the elders, the tradition of the elders. And this wasn't something given by God, but oral code that they had come up with that they thought would be helpful in following after God. And along with that tradition was inherited this system of oath-making that they had long practiced that was popular in that day. And so while Jesus talks about their swearing on some things that's binding and not, and we read it in our 21st century context in Chicago, and we're like, what is Jesus talking about? To the religious audience back then, they would have totally understood what Jesus was saying. And so some Pharisees would make oaths, but they would say, if, it was, if you made an oath, but you swore by the temple, they said, well, the temple's actually nothing. But if you made an oath and swore by the gold in the temple, whether that's the gold contained inside or the gold built to use the temple, we don't know. But the gold of the temple, then somehow that was binding. Again, they would do the same with sacrifices on the altar. The altar, if you swear by the altar, well, that's not a binding oath. You can actually break that oath and there's no consequence. But if you swear by the gift that's on it, then you have to keep that oath. See, the the first wrongful use of tradition that we see in how the Pharisees are using these oaths, the first wrongful use is that when tradition leads to ritualism, when tradition leads to ritualism, and their faith had become these practices of rituals that they were just emptily doing over and over again, and it's seen in how they've twisted the truth of scripture so they can make oaths that they can break and other ones that they have to keep. Jesus comes at them, and this is the only passage where he doesn't call them the the scribes and the Pharisees and hypocrites, but instead in verse 16, he calls them blind guides. And again, down in verse 17, blind fools, and then in verse 19, blind men. This actually isn't the first time 
that Jesus has gone after the Pharisees and calling them spiritually blind people. In fact, in your handout, I've, I've put down for us Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 to 14. And this is an earlier setting of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. And it says this, that Jesus called the people to him. And he said, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. See, what Jesus is saying is that defilement isn't, is, isn't external or it's not a ritual, but it's an internal and a moral thing. And then he says this, the disciples came and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. They will be rooted up. This is rich in Old Testament imagery throughout the, prof the prophetic books was that Israel was like a tree and those who truly were gods would have roots that would last, but those that were seen to not be truly gods would be pulled out and would not last. Lastly, Jesus says, verse 14, leave them alone for they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. What Jesus is saying here is that the influence that the Pharisees have on other people is such that they're only leading others towards religious destruction and disaster. They're not actually leading others towards God. And what happened is the Pharisees were stuck into this ritualism that was seen in how they made their oaths, that they were doing things just for the sake of doing them, but the religious practices lost the meaning and value that was originally intended to them. That there, were, there was a reason behind what they were supposed to be doing, but they had gotten so ritualistic in doing certain things that they lost the true meaning and substance behind it. See, this is true for us in our world. I think there's things that we do that it's easy for us just to take advantage of and to lose, to forget the significance behind why we're doing what we are doing. A few weeks ago, um, I was down with some friends down on the South side to a White Sox game. And if you've ever been to a professional sporting event in this country, you know what happens at the beginning of the game. Everyone stands up and you put your hand and you sing the national anthem. As I was reflecting, for a lot of us, that's just something that happens at sporting events that you do once in a while. But how many of us, every time we sing the national anthem, we really pause and we think of the significance of what we're singing, of, of the people who lay down their lives for the freedom that we can have? And I went back and I was thinking of the difference between when people sang the national anthem about 15, 20 years ago, right before and then right after the September 11th attacks. If you remember when sports games were starting to be played again, why was there such emotion and such heartfelt singing of God bless America and the national anthem, it's because we were reminded of the significance of what those songs represented. But for so long, the national anthem was just a ritual that we were Americans, so we know the words and we can sing along, but we're not actually doing it as well. See, sometimes, if we aren't careful, following God can just become rituals that we practice and they actually become devoid of the meaning in which they were meant to be done. So how do we make sure that our faith rituals that God has given us aren't just empty rituals? How do we make sure that in our lives, we're not just showing up and doing things for the sake of doing them, but we're doing them with meaning and significance? A few suggestions for us to make our faith, make sure it's not just an empty ritualistic faith. 
The first idea that I had this week was to focus on what happens rather than if we've completed our tasks or these rituals. Focus on what happens rather than completion. What I mean by that is, is it more important that you read your Bible every single day or is it more important than when you read, sit down and read God's word, you actually meditate on it so that God communicates and you learn and you grow from it? See, wouldn't it be hard to open your Bible real quick and read the Bible for 10 seconds out the door, get one verse, be like, check, Bible reading, done for Monday. All right, on to my next thing. And you don't sit and you don't meditate on God's word because you're used to wanting to check it, that you've completed it. But instead of focusing on if you've completed the rituals or completed these tasks, what happens if instead we think of the significance, what happened during those things to reflect on what God may be doing and teaching us in our lives? As many of you know, I've worked here with our junior high and high school students for over a decade. And so I've done a lot of research into into how high school students, what helps them keep their faith as they transition into adulthood. And studies have shown that when parents do one important thing, it has a huge difference often in the lives of a teenager. Because unfortunately, I think we all know younger people, maybe it's true for some of us here, who grew up in church, and then when we left for college, we just saw church as some empty ritual that our parents did, but it didn't have any meaning or value for us. So how do we instill in younger people that that idea that that church isn't just a ritual that good Christians do, but it's actually something of meaning and value of substance? They said that that there was a correlation between parents who not just brought their kids to church, but when they were leaving, shared with their kids what the mom and dad learned at church that Sunday. Not just, hey, what did you think of the song? Did you pay attention during the sermon? How was Sunday school? But when mom and dad would share with their kids, hey, you know what? When we were singing that song or when this scripture passage was read or when, when the pastor said this during the sermon, I, I was really wrestling with this and God was really convicting on my life. Maybe that, that I need to deal with this because what are they teaching their kids? They're saying this, this service isn't just a ritual that we show up to, but it's something that makes a difference in our lives. And I would encourage you, when you think of the rituals of following after Jesus, of scripture reading, of prayer, of church attendance, of service, rather than thinking of, have I done what I need to do to check it off the list, but instead to reflect on what God is teaching you through it. The second way that we can make sure that we're not just doing empty rituals is that we make sure to combine life change with head knowledge. We combine life change with head knowledge. Sometimes our faith becomes ritualistic when it overly is intellectual and it is a lack of application in our lives. When we just grow more in our knowledge of our, in our head of who God is, but it doesn't change our lives and how we interact with others. But we make sure that, that scripture reading is not just some ritual that we do to gain more knowledge, but when we combine with what we read and practical application to everyday living, that it helps us keep our rituals, that they're faith rituals and not just empty. A third suggestion for you is to keep a sense of awe. To keep a sense of awe about the rituals that you are doing. See, I think sometimes especially if you've grown up in the church, if you've been a Christian for for any amount of time, um, especially if you grew up going to church, that sometimes the familiarity of what happens when we meet with God, when we go to church, kind of, we, we lose it sometimes. We lose that sense 
of awe because we're so familiar with it. I know for me in my life, when I think of losing a sense of awe, I, I can think of a really easy example. See, I was, I was born and raised, as I've said before, in Southern California. And I lived outside, kind of in the desert, outside away from Los Angeles to San Diego in the far suburbs. Um, and we were right in the valley at the base of a 10,000 foot mountain. I thought everyone had a 10,000 foot mountain about a five minute drive from their house. That, that was my life. Doesn't everyone have that? Like, it's not a significant thing. There's, there's oh yeah, the snow-capped mountains again, cool. No big deal. What am I going to go do with my friends? It didn't, it didn't capture me. And now still, when I go home and I visit my parents and I get to go to a place like this was from last year, this is about a 30-minute drive from where I grew up. And yes, that is me up there. I'm like, how did I not appreciate this growing up? Like, this is beautiful. This is amazing. And now I live in Chicago, and it's so flat. I, mean, I love the people and the food, but it's so flat in Chicago. But I lost a sense of awe because I was so familiar with my surroundings. See, sometimes God just becomes a familiarity in our lives, and we need to keep a sense of awe that when we pray, who we get to communicate with. When we worship, who it is that we're worshiping. When we open God's word, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in the significance and the weight of that. As one scholar wrote, when drawing near to God becomes anything less than awesome and a little eerie, we have replaced interest in the giver with interest in the gift that we've emptied it down to a ritual where I just get stuff from God and we've lost our sense of awe. Can you remind yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what an awesome privilege you have at any moment to approach the throne of the King, the creator of our world. It's an incredible blessing and privilege. And may we never lose that sense of awe of who God is and that we can approach him whenever we want. Jesus continued here in verse 20. He says this, continuing on this theme of oaths. He says, so whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it by, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So he says, if you swear by the altar, you're not just swearing by the physical thing, but by the gift as well. If you swearing by the temple, it's not the temple or the gold, but the one who dwells in it, which of course is God himself. When you swear by the throne, you're also swearing by him who sits on the throne. See, they, they have neglected this truth that oaths aren't just a matter of technicality, but that all oaths are related to God. And what the Pharisees were guilty of doing in their tradition that they had created about oaths was that for the second point tonight is their tradition started to justify their sin. They created traditions and they used tradition to hide and then to justify the sin in their own lives. So they would make an oath with someone and then they would break it because, oh, that was just on the temple, not the gold of the temple, right? It's like when you were a kid and you crossed your fingers behind your back when you're making a promise. Oh, doesn't matter. Had my fingers crossed. Now I don't have to keep it. They were lying and deceiving and doing it in the name of tradition and actually using it to justify their sin. See, what does Jesus have to say about these kind of oaths? He addressed them specifically earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this to the Pharisees, excuse me, to, to all the people. He says this, again, you have heard it said to those, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white and black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, Jesus was pushing back on their notion that they were using their oath procedures to actually deceive others. And Jesus is saying that followers of God should be people of truth. Right? And you don't need to say, well, I swear on this for you actually to be trustworthy, or I swear on this, then now it really counts. But believers need to simply be people of truth. But what the Pharisees did to hide their sin is they created a system, a tradition built on complex rules and regulations. And the more complex things are, the easier it was for them to find loopholes and then to hide their sin amidst all the complexity that there was to go. The Pharisees had so many rules and regulations that they had that it was hard just to understand them all for lots of the people who lived in that day. And so they can then hide their sin because if you make the rules, you know the rules better than anyone. And so you could justify your own behavior. See, tradition often can add an unnecessary complexity to it. It often adds unnecessary complexity. See, there's some things in our lives that are always too complex. Have you done your taxes before? I've never met anyone who's done their taxes and said, well, that was way too simple. Someone needs to make this more difficult. There's not enough forms and things. See, this year I, I was excited because I, I do my own taxes and, and I went to fill out the forms online and I knew it was shortened. And so I went, it, it's not actually shortened. They just hid the information more. So it takes it harder to find the forms that you actually need to fill out. I was like, this isn't shorter at all. It's just more difficult to find what you need. I'm like, can't we just tell everyone this is what I make and like give them four numbers and they tell us how much we owe or we get back? That would be so simple. But it's such a complex system. And in the complexity, of course, we know that because it's so complex, it's easy for people if they want to try and hide, to try and cheat, to try and steal and to justify it because it's such a complex system. See, the, the Pharisees created a complex system of following after God. And in that complexity, they were able to hide their own sin. But I, what I want to propose to you tonight is that following Jesus is not always easy, but it's not that complicated. Following Jesus is not easy, but it's not very complicated most of the time. See, the, the, the people came to Jesus one time and asked him, if you could summarize the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, what would you summarize it to be? What could you summarize it? Jesus didn't look at them and go, you know, it's too complex. I really can't narrow it down to one or two things. That's really, you just got to read the whole thing. Just follow it. No, what did he say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On this hinges all the law and the commandments. See, Jesus made a very complex system and he narrowed it down to make it very simple. Now, is that easy to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself? No, right? That is not easy to do, but it's also sometimes not very complicated. And sometimes as Christians, we try and justify our sin because we've made following Jesus a little too complex. 
We've made it a little too, well, I don't know about this and that and the other and how this lines up. When we, instead of, instead of just asking ourselves, does this situation, if I acted this way, does that show a love for God and a love for others? What does it look like to love this person in this situation? Because Jesus took a complex system and he made it very simple. Following Jesus is not easy, but it's not always as complicated as we make it out to be. And the the Pharisees hid themselves in the complexity of the system. And sometimes we can do the same today rather than focus on the simple truth that God has given to us, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not easy, but also not as complicated as we make it out to be sometimes. Jesus has interacted with the Pharisees before on this idea of tradition. And so for our third point today, we're going to look at at Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 1, where, where Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. It says this, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. The tradition of the elders, like I said earlier, is this oral law that the Pharisees held as nearly authoritative as scripture. It was almost on par with God's revealed word himself. To give you an idea of some of the complexity of this tradition of the elders that they were referencing here was the washing of hands that the disciples had done. Some, an example of how complex of a system they had made, they made a rule that if you washed your hand, one hand with a single rinsing, then it was clean. But if in one's rinsing, you washed both hands, then it wasn't clean. Unless you did like five other things, and then it was. It was this complex system of rituals to try and follow. And Jesus hears this question, and rather than deal with hand washing, he goes to the greater issue, the fact that they've placed the tradition of the elders in light of above God's authority and the authority of Scripture. And so he responds to them in verse 3. Jesus answered them. They ask why, Jesus says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God has commanded this, Honor your father and mother, And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. These are quotes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, for honor your father and mother. The second quote comes from Exodus chapter 21, verse 17. And these were commandments given by God to the people. But instead, the Pharisees had said this in verse 5. Jesus accuses them. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not to honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now Jesus is referencing here again, something we don't have So it's a little hard for us to understand, but he's taking, there was this Old Testament principle that children were to honor their parents, right? To honor your father and mother. But the Pharisees had created a rule that rather than caring for your father or caring for your mother, you could actually designate a portion of the money that was to be spent caring for your parents. Remember, this is before retirement and insurance and all these things. That instead of caring for your parents, you could designate that gift to the treasury of the temple. And if you give it to the temple, then you actually don't have to owe your parents anything. And you can just tell them, well, sorry, mom and dad, I actually don't have to care for you because I gave it to the temple itself. It was a ritual of trying to get your money back by actually avoiding giving it to your parents, giving it to the temple to one day hopefully get it back yourself. They created this complex system around it. And by doing so in their own tradition, they actually were violating the command of God. What does Jesus say to them? Verse seven, 
chapter 15 says this, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, and he quotes from Isaiah 29 verse 13, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. See, their worship was all about what they thought and what they wanted. And as one author on this, on this book in Isaiah writes, he says this, when form replaces freshness, when rote replaces reality, worship treats God as less than the living God and God is offended. The God is offended and we don't worship him as he is worthy. And the Pharisees had placed their tradition actually above the authority that God had given them. The third danger the third way that the wrongful use of tradition is when tradition trumps the truth. When tradition trumps the truth. When what we've been raised in and the traditions that we receive, when we actually think that this is more important and we act on it as if it's of more important than the truth that revealed to us in God's word. See, I don't know about you, but that's, that's a scary idea that, that people would think of teaching the doctrines of the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. But it's true for each of us sometimes in our own hearts, and our own lives, if we're not examining our lives to make sure that what we're thinking, what we're teaching, what we're communicating isn't just the tradition we've received, the thoughts in our head, but actually God's word itself. One of my favorite authors, a man named Jerry Bridges, has a quote in one of his books that says this, I love it. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you think. And he writes, you cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. But see, when we think that we're right, we trump tradition, we, excuse me, we trump the truth with our own traditions when we think that we're always telling ourselves the truth. Because remember, the Pharisees were passionate and they had good intentions of honoring and following God. But instead, they were pulling things out of context to triumph over the truth that this thing would be more important than the others. See, for us to make sure that this doesn't happen in our own lives, we need to make sure that the Bible is our authority in all things of our lives. That when we think of what it means to follow God, the decisions that we make, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what has the most authority over you? Is it what you're thinking? Is it what your input you get from family or friends? Or is it what the word of God says? That scripture is to be our final authority. One author, Matthew Barrett, I love how he has these three things that we think about the Bible as our authority. He thinks that the Bible as our authority must be our only supreme authority. The Bible is our authority should be our only supreme authority. Meaning it's not the only thing that we look to. It's not the only authority over us, but it's the most important one. It's the final one. And if you find yourself with two competing things, what a friend, what the world, what your spouse, what someone else may say, if it competes with what God says, there's only one supreme authority and that's always to be the word of God that it's the supreme authority over all of the other authorities in our lives. He says scripture is our only sufficient authority. Scripture is our only sufficient authority. Everything we need to know for life and for godliness is found in scripture. God has given us his word. Everything we need is here. 
If God's word says it, we don't need to look around or ask for more. It's clear sometimes God's revealed himself. It's sufficient for us. And the scripture, lastly, is our only inerrant authority. It's our inerrant authority. See, it's the great thing about the word of God. You can ask from advice from some of the wisest, most godly people you know, and they may be wrong. Right? The, the smartest people, you know, they may give you wrong or bad advice. They may not give you wise counsel because they aren't perfect. They aren't infallible. But the word of God is. The word of God is perfect and infallible because it is the word of God communicated to us. It is inspired directly from God himself. And so it's trustworthy and it's inerrant in all that it has. See, does the Bible have authority over your life? See, we all have authority over our lives. But is it, are we just following in the religious traditions in which we were raised? Are the authorities in our lives just our own thoughts and the free thinking and the research that we've done? Or is the authority in our life the word of God itself? See, may tradition never trump the truth of God in our lives. May we not use a complex system to try and hide our sin. My prayer is that the traditions that we have wouldn't lead to an empty ritualistic faith, but instead we would stand in awe every day of the God who calls us his own. God, we do thank you that you have called us and we thank you for the grace and the mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. God, we pray that our lives wouldn't be ones just filled with empty rituals, but would be ones filled with heartfelt praise. That as your word tells us that we would offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, which is our reasonable act of worship. God, may we give you the glory and the honor that you deserve, because you indeed are worthy of all praise and glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.